This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Expectations, recorded June 27, 1999, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So the topic suggested this morning is expectation. Expectation. And what are the ramifications of expectation uh, in worldly life and on a spiritual path? And I think the best place to begin to talk about this is to go back to the Bhagavad Gita. And one of the most important and fundamental teachings that is given in any of the traditions, and in fact it's given in all the traditions in one form or another, and that is usually translated, you have the right to the action but not the fruit. We have a right to act but not to the fruit of our action. So what does this mean? The Bhagavad Gita was written at a time when there was a conception of spirituality, of mysticism, that it meant ceasing all action. Uh, there was a, a time of a development of tremendous yogic disciplines, and action was seen to be the enemy. And the Bhagavad Gita came along and said, no, as long as there's life, there's action. So it's not a question of ceasing to act, but then what is it? We have a right to act. We have not only a right to act, we can't help but acting. So that's not really the problem here. But the problem comes when we become attached to the fruit of our actions. In other words, when we expect things to be a certain way and they don't turn out that way. This is a very, very important thing to observe in your own life. It won't mean anything if it's just a teaching in the Bhagavad Gita. Until you start to see how this actually operates in your life, then it's just a bit of philosophy. So what? You'll be able to quote the Bhagavad Gita, and, and if you're studying it at the U of O, maybe you can write a paper on it and get an A. But it won't do you any good personally. But if you watch your life, in detail, how much of your suffering comes from these little and big disappointments that we experience when we've expected something to turn out one way and it hasn't? So we can look at this from everything from a very little thing. For instance, I love mangoes. Mangoes are very hard to buy in this country, and one of the reasons there are good mangoes are hard to buy, and one of the reasons is it's very hard to judge when they're going to be ripe. They're usually too hard in the store, and then they've been picked green, and so even if they ripen, they're not really going to taste good. So you, the trick is to get a mango that is soft, but is not already started to rot. Very hard to tell from the outside. And once in a while, I get a mango, and it really feels, oh, this one's going to be just perfect. And I get that mango, and I bring it home, and I put it on uh, the top of my refrigerator. And then the next morning, I go to eat it, and I cut into it, and it's already turned. It's already rotted. Oh. A little disappointment. Oh. Right? A little bit of suffering. Oh. 
Mangoes aren't cheap, if you've noticed in the store, compared to other fruit. So it's not only I'm not going to get the taste of the mango, I've spent all this money and the mango hasn't turned out. And that uh, food store chain, they're just ripping me off. Modern society is terrible because we can't get tree-ripened fruit anymore. I mean, your mind can go on and on and on and on and on, right? All the suffering comes from just this little expectation that the mango is going to be ripe and edible and beautiful and perfect, and it's not. Two expectations like, ooh, I know a good one. You spend a lot of money buying a car, a good American car with a good warranty. But you've researched in Consumer Reports. You've done all your homework background. You've gotten the best car you could get. And from day one, things start going wrong with it. Now, that's a big investment. It's a big investment in terms of money, but perhaps you've used this car in your business. You rely on it. And not only that, the things that go wrong with it, the, uh, you take it down to the service station, they don't know what's wrong with it, they can't fix it, they tell you it's something you, uh, that you did, it's your fault, it's not covered by the warranty, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You could get years of suffering out of that one. <laughs> I know some people who have done that. <laughs> How about a really big one? How about uh, having a child? <clears throat> And all the expectations you have for it when it grows up. How it's going to uh, mature, what a wonderful human being this child's going to be. Of course it's going to be brilliant. And have all the social graces and successful and, you know, all those things, right? And then all sorts of things will go wrong. The child will never be exactly the way you imagine. You might be able to adjust to that, and the child may turn out to be, you know, fine, and you may have, end up having a very good relationship with the child and be very proud of it. But it's certainly the child is not going to be the way you imagined it and the, when you were holding it there in your arms, you know, the first time after birth. It'd be terrible for the child if it, if it was. That, I mean, the child had no life of its own. It was just simply living out your fantasy. So it's a good thing the child isn't going to be that way. But things can go more seriously wrong. A child can be paralyzed at a young age. A child can die. This is, this is major suffering now. Where does it come from? Our expectations. When the child dies, watch closely. It's not the suffering doesn't come from the past relationship you had with the child, unless you had a really terrible one. It comes because suddenly all that expectation is uh, taken away from you. It collapses. Now, if we look through all these situations, from buying the mango to the death of a child, we will see that the suffering comes from our expectation that things would not be this way. Our expectations that things would be the way we wanted them to be. Not just our expectations, more subtle than that, our attachment to that expectation. Our clinging to that expectation that image or series of images of how the world should be, how reality should turn out. 
It's important to note here that this idea that we have of how the world should be is not an objective idea, it is personal and subjective. So I might like mangoes a little more on the ripened side than somebody else who might like them a little bit more on the sour side. So my perfect mango isn't this other person's perfect mango. And there is no such thing as a perfect mango in reality. There's only my expectation of a perfect mango and somebody else's expectation. There are some things that we have more consensus on, like a car. However, if you uh, look at it in perspective, the very fact you have a car to drive around in is something that many people on this planet would give their right arm for, even if it didn't work very well, even if it did keep breaking down. When I traveled in Mexico years ago in the early 60s, you saw very few new cars in Mexico City in the rich sections, but in the countryside, you didn't see any new American cars. They were all 10 to 20 years old or older. And the Mexicans were very ingenious at keeping them running, but they always had to be tinkered with and repaired. You know, it was a big headache. In our culture, we would see it as a big headache. In their culture, they thought it was wonderful. Oh, you got a car. That's terrific. So again, our expectation, our image of what should be doesn't exist out there in reality as something. Even a child growing up, and this is something that's probably almost universal consensus on. One of the things that, that grabs our hearts the most, no matter what situation we're viewing, from whatever culture in the whole world, when we see wars or disasters or earthquakes and so forth, they always show the little kid on purpose, because that's going to tug your heart. Because we don't care if it's a black kid, a white kid, a Chinese kid, unless you're a really hard-boiled racist. You don't care if they're Muslims or Christians or Jews or whatever. That's pretty universal. I don't think alligators care too much. It's a human point of view, and in that sense it's uh, universal for human beings, but it is still not an objective fact of the universe. What I'm trying to communicate here is that our images, our expectations, how things should be, are personal, subjective, and imaginary. They don't relate to anything <laughs> in reality. <clears throat> when we are attached to an image, an imaginary world, whether it's an um, an imaginary world in which we're tasting a perfect mango, or an imaginary world in which we have a perfectly running car, or an imaginary world in which our child grows up, whenever we're attached to that imaginary world and reality departs from it, at that moment, if we hold on to that imaginary world, we will suffer. And the suffering is very simple. We are not living realistically. We are literally still living in an imaginary world. A part of us is still in that world that could have been. And reality is moving on, as it always does. Always moving on. Always moving on. In fact, whatever imaginary world we become attached to will, in the end, depart from reality because reality is totally impermanent. Always shifting. Always changing. 
So it's like, literally like trying to scoop up a wave out of the ocean. The waves are rolling. You can't go in there and scoop them up and then take it home and put a wave on your mantelpiece. But we act, we behave, we believe that we can do this. So no wonder we suffer. It's not a big mystery. Now, note here is the fine difference between having an expectation and being attached to it. The mind's job, the thinking mind's job, is to predict, like the weatherman. You could think of the thinking mind as kind of a weatherman. The thinking mind's job is to anticipate what's going to happen, and then to plan. That's what it's hired for. Nothing wrong with that. It creates these images because that's part of how it thinks and plans. So it's not the expectation itself. It's the attachment to the expectation that is the problem. It's not having a plan, but it's the attachment to the plan matching the reality. So I might have a plan to go to Hawaii for my vacation. And I look at the brochures and I see the sunny beaches and I see the uh, snorkeling and the clear waters and hiking up Mount what? I haven't been to Hawaii. What, what mountain do you hike up? Haleakala. There you go. I'll, I wouldn't even try to say it. <laughs> hiking up Mount Haleaka? Haleakala. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And so you plan, you save your money, you put aside a little bit, uh, you s uh, skimp and scrape here and there, you call the airlines, you get a discount ticket, uh, you, get, you get a discount hotel and this and that, and you go and Hurricane Susan's blowing through. Now, there's nothing wrong with all that planning. But when you get there, in that moment, and you can see where that moment's happening, maybe it's when you're just landing, and the, the pilot comes on and says, well, I'm sorry, we have a hurricane on the way. It's due to, to hit land in 20 minutes. Get to your hotel as quickly as possible. Uh-oh. You see the snorkeling disappearing, the hiking disappearing, the sunny beaches all disappearing. And that's a moment where if you see what's going on, that you are hanging on to all those pictures you got out of the travel brochures, just let them go. Go to your hotel. Be totally open to what's going to happen. You might have the greatest time in your life. I, I mean that. All the possibilities here. Maybe there is a disaster. Maybe the hurricane blows through and people are injured and all that. Rush down to the Red Cross and volunteer to help. And you may have one of the greatest experiences of interacting with people you've had in your whole life. You know, it's a wonderful thing when there's a crisis and everybody's helping each other. It's really a beautiful experience. It brings out the best in us, usually. If you sit in your room... Moaning and groaning about, oh, I saved all this money and I got to Hawaii and it was a hurricane. Nah, nah, nah. You'll just sit there suffering. You'll miss it. Do you see what I'm talking about? If we always, if we're 
watchful, pay attention. And when we see realities departing from our plan, our imaginary plan, if we go with reality and let go of the plan, then we're always right here, right here, open to reality, with reality, instead of constantly clinging to imaginary worlds. So it's not a question about not planning. It's not a question about not letting the mind kick up an expectation. Watch the expectations. They're just thoughts. They're just literally images. Oh, okay, fine. And if the plan seems good and the expectation seems reasonable, go. But don't be attached to it. We have the right to act. All those things are acting. Going to wise acting. Trying to get a better job. Whatever. But not to the fruit of the action. Now, it's interesting because this is how worldly people live. Always attached to the fruit of the action and always suffering. So we go on a spiritual path. So now we don't want to go to Hawaii. We don't care about cars. We don't care about mangoes. Now we want blissful states. We want love and joy in our lives. We want all sorts of other things. But what happens? We bring that same grasping mind to our spiritual practice. So our expectations are no longer about, quote, worldly things. Our expectations start to be about spiritual things. But you watch the same process happens. So we learn how to meditate, and we've read about calm abiding states and so forth, and we plan, and we have this expectation, and we sit there 20 minutes a day, and this and that, we go on meditation retreats, and sure enough, we start to actually experience these things. How goody, how goody. And maybe we can experience them quite regularly. And then something happens in our lives. And then we sit down and meditate, and you can't get back to that calm abiding. And you try harder and harder, and it gets it's worse and worse. Joseph Goldstein told a wonderful story about this. He's an American meditation teacher who studied in India and then came back to this country. And he said, in India, when he'd meditate, he would have this, what do you call it, a body of bliss, I think. Very easily. He'd just sit down and meditate, fall into this body of bliss. He came back to this country and changed his circumstances, you know, went home to visit his family. That'll, that'll do it a lot. And whatnot. And then every time, the same meditation practice, he'd sit down, instead of a body of bliss, he had a body of iron. And he hated it, and he kept trying to get back to what was that in India I could get back to, until he realized one day what was going on. He was attached to these states that he'd been experienced. And the minute he let them go and just relaxed, then his meditation improved. Spiritual states are just as ephemeral as worldly goodies. Spiritual emotions are just as ephemeral as worldly emotions. And if you do spiritual practice, it does open you up to feeling more compassion, more love. Feeling divine love. But at the emotional level, we'll have these feelings and then they'll pass. All emotions are ephemeral. That's what emotion means. It comes from a root, the root word to move. It's constantly moving. But we get attached to spiritual 
states, spiritual things. And we start to do our practice in order to get them or to repeat them. And then we build up more and more attachment. <clears throat> and then we have, start having more and more spiritual suffering, which all the great mystics have written about. Go read the uh, literature of the traditions. The dark night of the soul, experiences of aridity, the desert experience, you know, which come after they've had all these spiritual consolations. Suddenly everything dries up for them. In some ways, it's worse than worldly suffering because they don't even care about worldly things anymore. Once you've had a taste of spiritual fruit, oh. But we brought the same grasping mind to our spiritual practice. It's almost inevitable, and that's fine. You can't, you can't decide to do differently. But what you can do is learn to pay attention. And the difference between a spiritual path and a worldly path is this. That once you're on a spiritual path, and once you begin to see the cause of your suffering, and once you begin to let go, then you discover something else operating in your life. We no longer practice in order to get something. If spiritual experiences come, great, we enjoy them. When they pass, we let them go. We're not practicing to get something anymore. We're practicing to give something. And what we're practicing to give is to give ourselves over to reality. And what we discover in that reality is something quite wonderful. An intelligence, a love, a wisdom. It's Christian traditions called grace or the spirit. Taoism is called the Tao, moving through us and through the world. Longchenpa, a great Tibetan master, calls it the ever-flowing yoga river. In Islam, the whole world is a continuing self-disclosure of God. If we could but see it, that's what's happening. As long as we are fixated on what we want, we don't see it. When we let go of what we want. And when our practice starts to become a practice not of gaining, but of surrendering, we discover. This is why Jesus said in the Gospel of Thomas, the kingdom of God does not come by expectation. They won't say, look, there it is, or look, here it is. But the kingdom of God is spread upon the earth, but we don't see it. It's here now. It's not something to get in the future. Nirvana isn't someplace you go to, despite the imagery in Buddhism of crossing to the other shore. And people started to take that in a very dualistic way. So the Mahayana Buddhists came along and said, no, Nirvana is samsara. Samsara is Nirvana. It ain't out there to be gotten someplace. It's just something to be discovered. And that nirvana, that kingdom of God, is the reality. Just the naked reality that I've been talking about all the time here. The reality of the hurricane. When you go to Hawaii, the reality of your child's death, the reality of the rotten mango. We see it all in dualistic terms. What's good and what's bad. Because we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was our downfall. 
So that's, that's our uh, colored glasses through which we see the world. We take that off, and it's all divine. It's all the Tao. It's all Buddha nature. That's why the Zen master was asked, what is Buddha nature? And he said, a pile of dung in the courtyard. He meant that. Oh, everybody thinks that, gee, that's a, a, a mind bender. It's not a mind bender. It's the truth. Go look. That is Buddha nature. That is a divine self-disclosure. But we have to let go of the imaginary world that we would like to live in in order to discover the divine world that we do, in fact, live in. And that's really what a spiritual practice is about. It's not about gaining or going anywhere. It's about letting go. It's about surrendering. There's a wonderful story about Brother Lawrence, a great Christian mystic of the 16th century, 17th century. And his practice was so simple. He just wanted to do the will of God. And this is a practice of surrender. Surrender to the will of God. What's the will of God? It's what is happening, including the plans that are cooked up by your mind. That's the will of God, too. Nothing wrong with that. But don't make a duality out of it. And he practiced this way. And then, for a while, he'd be in this wonderful state of grace, as he called it. And it would last for a while. And then it would dry up. Oh, what happened? Oh, I'm a wretched sinner after all. I'm not pure enough. I haven't done enough. Da, 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 da. And then he'd practice for a while, and then he'd be in a state of grace again. <laughs> and then it would disappear. Oh, oh. And then finally he realized... He said, if I really, really am surrendered to the will of God, I won't demand to be in a state of grace all the time. Because that's not surrendering to the will of God. And so he let that go. And he says from, from that moment that he let it go, he was never outside the grace. And the grace itself is then just not having any expectation of what that grace will be. If you are constantly turning into reality, if you are constantly embracing reality, the grace is whatever is manifesting, not what you think grace should be. So I think the final obstacle, barrier, that when we're on a spiritual path, when we start to really have not just emotional experiences, but a deep uh, immediate, direct, what I call Gnostic flashes of reality. They're true flashes. They're true understandings. There it is. The veils have parted. It's laid bare. It's naked. And it's accompanied by all sorts of things, usually for most people. Tremendous bliss, for instance. Sometimes tremendous uh, sense of power and energy. All sorts of phenomena. And very subtly, the mind fixates on all of that as a kind of state. And I'm going to continue in this state. And you might continue in the state for months, even for years. All states are impermanent. There's been a subtle grasping, a subtle uh, <clears throat> clinging. A, a, an identification. Oh, this is enlightenment as opposed to everything else. 
You see what I mean? Now I found it. This is it. Aha! Now I, all I have to do is hang on to it, grab it. It's very, very subtle. It's not that we know what we're doing. But in a very subtle way, we've created a duality based on an expectation and then tried to hang on to it. And when it goes, then, of course, you feel like you've lost your enlightenment. This is why it's very important if you do have a Gnostic flash, if you do find yourself deeply immersed in what you feel is enlightenment, forget about enlightenment. The, if the question arises, is this enlightenment or not, you're, you're already down the, the path to delusion again. Just keep embracing reality. In fact, the Tibetan tradition has practices designed for precisely this stage of a spiritual path. When someone's been, as they call it, introduced to the true nature of their mind. That is a direct introduction, not, not a, a philosophical teaching. And the practices are about destroying spiritual states. So you do a, a kind of meditation. It's, it's a non-meditation. And the minute you start getting into a state of calm and clarity, you destroy it. That's one way to do it. Just for that reason, so that you don't get attached to any particular state. So that you understand then totally, truly, you have to absolutely surrender to whatever is going on. All the things we think aren't spiritual. Desire arises. Anger arises. You wake up some days sort of, eh, don't feel so hot, no energy. All those things we think aren't spiritual. All the things that we've been practicing in order to get rid of. Embrace it all. And the constant embrace, you become transparent to it all. You find there is no one there resisting it then reality is just the river flowing. And all our suffering, you realize, comes from trying to resist that river flowing. But when you just jump in and go with the river, there's no difference between you and the river. There's no, in the, in the Christian and uh, a Muslim tradition that says no, no difference between the will of Allah and your will when you're just going with the river. The, the river is the will of God. That doesn't mean that you can't steer in the river. This is why we were given human uh, intelligence. It doesn't mean that intelligence doesn't continue to function. It's like steering in the current with an oar. And it all flows out of this one teaching. We have a right to the action, but not the fruit. That teaching guides us to pay attention to our lives. You watch in your own life and start always, my suggestion is, with little things. You know, your expectation of uh, having your favorite cup of espresso and then you go there one day and the, and the Starbucks is closed. And you see the real cause of suffering is not the fact that Starbucks closed. It's that you've had an attachment to Starbucks being open. Some people would have a lot of suffering if, uh, I don't know, Gray's Garden Store suddenly closed tomorrow. Anybody here know Gray's? Yes. See, I, I thought so, right? 
it wouldn't cause me the slightest bit of suffering. <laughs> I have absolutely no expectation or attachment. The graves will be open. I hardly know the place exists. It might cause you suffering. Well, indirectly. <laughs> 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 yes, it gets complex, doesn't it? <laughs> I might, if it burned down, I might send them a big donation. Get this rebuilt quickly. You're driving my wife nuts, and she's driving me nuts. <laughs> but then, okay, so that takes a commitment. Paying attention takes a commitment. Then you begin to learn how to let that attachment go right in the moment. This isn't about making a New Year's resolution. I won't be attached anymore because this is a mechanical conditioned process. But right in that moment when you get off the plane in Hawaii and the hurricane's on its way and you can see it right there, it's very easy just to let it go. It really is at that moment. It sounds like that we have to practice detachment. It sounds like, I know, some sort of stoic, heroic, ascetic practice. It's not at all. It's just a, a, when you see that this is what's causing your suffering, it's quite easy just to drop it. Oh, and then you're alert to the wind and how the storm is rising and all the beauty that's inherent in storms and everything else. And then finally, it's the total surrender. Not only the surrender of the attachment, but it's the surrender of any identification with this whole process of expectation and planning and how the world should be and all that. It, it goes on, but it just goes on. It goes on the way the weather goes on. And when there's that total surrender of that identification with any particular set of phenomena, mental phenomena, emotional phenomena, or whatever, as opposed to all the rest of the phenomena, then it's just one big river. It's one big drama. And guess what? You wouldn't want to change any of it. You really wouldn't. You wouldn't want to take out the pain and the suffering and, and so forth. It wouldn't be much of a drama. I've said this before, just look in your own lives, your favorite movie, and start going through and taking out all the terrible things that happened in that movie. You won't have any movie left. You know? It'll be, it'll be five minutes. I mean, boy meets girl, they get married, and there's a nice wedding. How long, how long do you like to sit and watch your friend's wedding videos? You know? So I hope that is uh, somewhat helpful. Uh, trying to address this topic of expectation from different points of view. Any questions or comments? Anything you've noticed in your own life you'd like to share? Yeah. Well, in terms of, not the final thing you're talking about, but in terms of the spiritual experiences coming and going, uh, I experienced that. But when it doesn't happen, when I think I've got it set up for it to happen, but I know it's going to happen another time. I have faith in the, in the fact that it does happen, and if I don't have it right now, it'll happen another time. Yes, and that's... So, so that's how I can let go of that expectation. Right. Again, and that's very good. That's a very good way to begin here. But be careful, because if you're letting it go because of the faith it'll come back, that's not going to happen either? Well, it, it, may, it may well come back. It does. And a certain thing, it'll all come back. But also what will come back is the things that you don't want. So let's just say sure. the difference, a restless meditation and a calm meditation. 
So if in the restless meditation, you have the faith to let go because you know eventually calm meditation will come back. That's great. That's very helpful in the practice. It means you can just start to relax in the practice. But also realize that also restless meditation is going to come back. Yeah, but that's okay. It's not right. Try to see, try to see, try to get beyond this business of the good and the bad. That, that whatever is going on is a divine yeah, self-disclosure. Okay. Well, th this is the point, though. Yeah. Watch, this gets very subtle. You know, our minds still want to uh, cling to what's good and push away what's bad. That is what this dualistic mind is all about, you know. <clears throat> so it's just very interesting to sit there when you're having a restless meditation and then realize, gee, I'm struggling for something that isn't here. Let me totally relax and surrender to what is going on. But what is going on is pretty ordinary. Well, this is why, you know, in Zen they say enlightenment's nothing special. I mean, maybe we're overlooking enlightenment because it's just what's most ordinary. Uh, Choigyam Chungpa, a Tibetan teacher, said, you know, enlightenment is like, it's like, compared to all the other kinds of spiritual experiences you can have, it's like a beach. And on this beach there are all sorts of wonderful shaped and colored stones that get your attention as you're going down the beach. And you pick up this one and it's Oh, I don't know, it's a deep red, coral red, you know, and, and very sharp-edged. And here's another, oh, just so white and smooth and, you know, all these things. It says, enlightenment is that totally dull, ordinary stone that nobody bothers to pick up. So if, if we're walking down the, the beach of our spiritual experience, only paying attention to those experiences that stand out for their beauty or unusualness or whatever... Uh, maybe in every moment we're overlooking something that is so totally ordinary that attention just skips over. So I'll notice that before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, after enlightenment. Chop wood, carry water. This exactly what this teaching is about. You see, teachings have to be dualistic because it's the nature of language. So it's not a question of either or. They complement each other. It's like modern <laughs> physics with wave and particle. There are some teachings that to talk about enlightenment is the most extraordinary thing in the world. That's to get your attention. I mean, there, there's a truth about that, too. It's, it's the only thing worth going for in a certain kind of way. On the other hand, it is also, at the same time, totally ordinary, nothing special. So they're not contradictory. And each teaching has a function. And that the function is precisely, once you start getting attached to one way enlightenment should be, the other teaching comes and pulls the rug out from under that one. Either way. The, the paradox in, behind all this is that you're speaking these words right now to our minds. And um, so this, uh, I didn't give you, I don't know your name. Uh, Peggy. Peggy. When Peggy said uh, this thing about, well, she knows that she can sit through the bad stuff because the good stuff is going to come eventually. And... Uh, Process. I, the word I use for that is bargaining. Bargaining my way through life. So uh, even all the wonderful teachings that I get by coming here, uh, my mind is just sucking all that stuff in, and I'm going to use it later to bargain my way through some <coughs> tricky situation. But oh, because Joel said, you know. That's and, right. But this is why I try to include in the teachings things to look for in your practice. So it's not just a philosophical teaching. You know, to go actually look and see if it's true, the attachment to expectation causes the suffering. 
and then to see if you can catch that moment where you where it really is arising, where the reality is departing, and have attention be right there. So if you remember my words in that moment, they might be helpful. Because it won't be a no negotiation. It's just, oh, that's right. Just drop it. And, it. and it may work. And once it works for you once, you'll kind of have a knack of it, and then it gets easier and easier to continue to do that. you see what I mean? So certainly true what you say. This is the mind takes this and tries to then negotiate with it and all that. But really, the, the, the level at which teachings are most valuable is actually when these words seep in and they sort of pop up in the moment you need them. And they direct you attention to do something different, to break that conditioning. In fact, my whole enlightenment came, if you read my book, in the moment between falling asleep before dreams came. And those words that I had read many times before, look between waking and sleep and being is revealed, they just popped into my mind at that moment. I didn't think them up. I mean, do you know what I mean? They like surfaced. It was the right teaching at the right moment with the right pointing, and boom. So uh, these teachings are to guide practice. Not only, as Mike said in the beginning, do we have to discover the truth for ourselves, we have to discover the practice for ourselves in every moment. We have to really discover what it means to pay attention with this kind of attention that isn't a grasping attention. And what it means to have a committed practice, a really committed practice where it becomes part of your life, not something you're opposing from the outside, but something that's calling you to practice. That's why you're committed to the practice, not because you're beating yourself over the head because you think you'd be a good boy or a good little girl if you practiced, you see what I mean? And then detachment, this business of letting go, it, nobody can tell you exactly how to do that. It happens just in the moment. And certainly nobody can tell you how to surrender. Surrender is something, again, that arises from within. And it comes through the practice, you know. I don't know if that's helpful. Yes. Joel, I don't get a sense that you're negating that somebody can have a knowing that something's going to happen or have absolute faith that something's going to happen and, and surrender to that and have it happen. I don't oh, sure. Yeah. The, the key is watch a disappointment if it doesn't happen. Yeah. See, I mean, I can have absolute faith something's going to happen and plan my life around it and whatnot. And if it's happened, it's great. If it doesn't happen, you know, that will tell you if there's an attachment. Usually we don't spot the attachments when reality does work out the way we've planned it. And we don't usually have sufferings. In fact, we have, you know, a little bit of burst of happiness. It's interesting why we have a little burst of happiness, because then we are in sync with reality. When you have a plan and when you get to Hawaii and those beaches are beautiful and you're climbing up that mountain, you are in sync with reality. Of course you're happy. Why not be in sync with reality all the time? Why not be real all the time? So we plan. Often things work out the way we want them. We have faith, just an intuition. Sometimes we get things that don't come from the thinking mind. Buying this house came from a dream. I woke up one morning. I said, Jennifer, how would you like to buy a house? And she said, we're buying a house, aren't we? You don't pretend that you're asking me. <laughs> and then a couple of, you know, synchronistic things happened. It was like somebody running ahead, clearing the path. We just sort of walked down it, you know. 
She said, well, we can start looking, but I'm not ready to decide yet. I said, well, Jennifer, you know, you can never tell. <laughs> this is the first house we actually walked through on the first day out. This is the first house we actually walked through and we bought it. So uh, these things happen very mysteriously. And all sorts of things will open up on a spiritual path. It'll happen, you know, not in our very limited, conditioned ways of viewing how things happen. Again, the, the key question here is the attachment. Attachment to paranormal phenomena. Attachment to having ESP. Attachment to all these things, which will manifest for most people. But now are you going to own it? Are you going to, you know... If you feel something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, okay, so what? Yeah. I have two comments. One is on your Hawaii example, there's something more subtle. You know, maybe I go through sure. this scenario the, the warm beach is climbing the mountain. And let's say the weather's perfect and I get there. Often, the experience of the warm beaches and climbing the mountain isn't as great as the imaginary anticipation. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and secondly, what comes to mind when you talk about this is I think we've been reading a lot about quantum physics, you know, dancing movie masters and things. And I realize, for me anyway, that we live in a quantum life where these expectations are just a possibility or a probability, but never sure. And if we look at it that way as, as never fixed, it it lets me off the hook a little as I'm trying to shift my view of that. Yes, and this is one of the uh, reasons that I think is valuable to read things about like quantum mechanics, because the quantum view of the world in that sense is much closer to the mystics view that uh, things aren't fixed. They aren't out there solid realities. It's all a shifting uh, probabilities that things will happen and manifest, even in the spiritual realm, even when there's tremendous faith, you know what I mean? That just means the probability is, if you want to translate it into mathematical terms, high. So I think it's very helpful. And you're right, uh, it gets very subtle. I mean, the, the human mind is so creative at causing suffering, it just amazes me sometimes. <laughs> But if you uh, observe in your life, sometimes the most extraordinary experiences are ones that were totally unexpected, the happiest or joyful or interesting or creative. And why? Because when there's no expectation, there's nothing to compare it to. Do you know what I mean? And that's why when you go to Hawaii and you walk down that beach, you know, Mike can tell you about that, that beach it wasn't like somebody took a brownie and snapped a picture. Do you know what I mean? They did a big production. They, they cleaned off all the garbage of the beach. They put filters <laughs> on to get the colors of the water just right. I mean, they spent hours and a good deal of money making that beach look like you'll never see it in your life, really. <laughs> the sunset postcard with colors. That exactly. But if you arrived someplace without any expectation whatsoever, chances are that your experience of it will be Oh my God, look at this place, do you see? Because of that pristine quality, there's nothing to compare it to. It's a non-dualistic experience. Yeah. Do you think in that some people are coining the, the phrase, you create your own reality very loosely and just kind of throwing it out there? Or do you think there's people that are coming from the very purest place they're capable of and saying that's just another way of saying embracing reality? One example where it maybe isn't as pure is uh, relating it to using affirmations in your life. Again, I think these can be very valuable. 
Uh, but they're valuable for breaking down the conditioning, and they're particularly valuable for breaking, in that case, for breaking down a negative conditioning. You know, our minds can be conditioned that everything's going to work out great, but we can also have the opposite, negative conditioning, you know, that nothing I do will work, the world's terrible, you know. Either way, from, from a mystic's point of view, it's still conditioning. Now, if you have that sort of mind and that sort of conditioning, then I think affirmations and things like that can be very helpful. If you have a mind that's always seeing the negative side of things, to be able to, you know, substitute a positive thought is very helpful. Or a mind that's always seeing the negative side of people. That redresses a kind of very pathological imbalance in this conditioning. But ultimately, you want to get beyond all of the conditioning. Do you see what I mean? So this term, we create our own reality, is used very loosely, and it also depends on who the we is here. We certainly do create our own suffering, the reality of suffering. That is, there's no question about that. Now, who creates the reality in which there is no I and other and so forth? Uh, and the Hindus say, you are that. That is that that is the fundamental principle of all of this. So in that sense, you are creating your reality right now. In that sense, you are uh, God in that sense. If you surrender to it. Yes, but the ego isn't God. Your true nature is God, not this little thing up here. You see what I mean? Now, as long as the little thing up here is trying to create a world that it wants, it is bound at some point to collide with the way the world is. So if it gives up trying to create the world it wants, it discovers the world as it is, and it discovers that world is the divine world. So in a sense, there's an absolute reality of what is created by the cosmic imagination, and then there's the relative reality of our consensus of egos, what our minds and hearts and lives kind of create together as this is what we believe, and then get to one from the other is a quantum leap to, to leap from the ego level to, uh, to see what really is in the absolute. And again, that's let's say, a nice metaphor from quantum mechanics. It's that quantum leap. A quantum leap does not go through space and time. A quantum leap is not causal. It doesn't have a cause. Even the little insights we have actually are little quantum leaps. And gnosis, awakening, realization is just an enormous quantum leap. It's a quantum leap out of one imaginary world, but not landing in any other one. It's very close to, to creativity that happens in science. And the great breakthroughs, for instance, when Heisenberg discovered quantum mechanics, he had to totally abandon the old Newtonian mechanics. And it was like an explosion, a sudden insight. I mean, he just suddenly saw it. He describes this, you know, and, the, and he rushed back to his hotel room and he started writing out the mathematics of it. He was so excited and all that. that that's very similar. The difference is he went from one conceptual reality and jumped into another one. What would it be like to jump out altogether? Yeah. Well, if there are no more questions or comments, let's bring the formal part of the evening to uh, evening of the afternoon. We'll bring him in. We'll bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the library until we see you again. Peace to you all.